As you are, please take your copy of God's Word and turn to Romans chapter 1. And if you don't have a copy, there should be a, a, a Bible in the chairs underneath in front of you that you could use this morning, that you could turn to Romans chapter 1. It's found on page 939. Hear now the Word of God. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who is descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray this morning. Oh Lord, we are so excited this morning as we come to be able to be in your house and to worship you. And we're so thankful, God, that you have promised that we're just even two or three people gather in your name. Here you are in the midst of them. And we know that you are with us in worship today. And Father, it's been so good, such a blessing to, to recount your wonderful works and who you are in your character as we have sung, as we have prayed, as we have read your word. Uh, but Lord, now as we come before uh, the preaching of the word, would you speak to us? We pray that you would, as Matt has already prayed, open our hearts to receive your word by faith. Lord, uh, deal with us as we need to be dealt with in a way that would draw us ever closer to you and to turn away from our sin. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning, obviously, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen? And because, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, that without the resurrection, really, Christians have no foundation for their faith. Because as Christians, we don't just have faith in faith. We have faith in facts. We have faith in reality. I might even put it this way, that it is a faith that is rooted in a person. God didn't come to just give us a book with a list of rules to tell us how to live differently or, or a book that tells us just about who he is. But at the heart of the gospel is Jesus Christ. If you look at Romans chapter 1, verse 9, actually, we read, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel or the good news of his Son, Jesus Christ. And, and it is the prophets and the apostles that bear witness to who Jesus Christ is as the Messiah. Well, this morning we're going to sort of focus on verses 3 and 4, which is the heart of the text that we read this morning. So we're not going to deal with, with all seven verses per se, really focusing on these two. And I'm probably going to use this more as just a jumping point for a topical sermon on the things that's contained in verses 3 and 4. So let me read those again. There's sort of a, a contrast that's going on in these two verses. Let me read that again. Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. 
You see, we see in these two in these two verses the amazing mystery of Jesus Christ, Jesus who is both divine and human. On one hand, he is the seed or the son of David. On the other hand, he is the son of God. And I want to look at these two things this morning. First of all, starting with verse three, talking about Christ's humanity. In verse three, we read that he was the descendant of David according to the flesh. In other words, Jesus was made human like you and I, except he was without sin. That, that human nature came into existence when the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary and conceived the Christ child within her. And so when he was born some 2,000 years ago, that was his humanity coming into the world. And, and he wasn't just merely any old human. He, as we read here in the text, was a descendant of David. Now that that was a prophecy, of course, that was given long before to King David, that one of his lineage would come and would be the Messiah who would sit upon his throne. And Paul wants us to know that Christ is that Messiah who has come. And so we see here Christ coming in the incarnation. He is coming as, as, a, as a person, as a man. Now, I think we need to understand that while we speak of Christ becoming human, we, we must not forget that He continues to be the Son of God. You know, it's not that He was divine and then He became human and then He became divine again after His resurrection, but He continued to be divine even as He has become human. And John tells us uh, of that in his uh, gospel message. In John chapter 1, verse 14, we read, The Word became flesh. Now, the Word, uh, obviously, is uh, another name for Jesus. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. See, we see there His humanity. But John goes on and he says, And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And see, so you see those two things that go together. And so Christ is both God and man, both Son of David and Son of God. Now, if I could... It's maybe a little bit early in the sermon, but I'm still going to go down a rabbit trail anyway, okay? I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but, you know, in, in a little bit later on in the service, we're going to sing that wonderful a modern hymn written by the Gettys entitled, In Christ Alone. And in verse 2, this is the words that we will sing. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save till on the cross as Jesus died the wrath of God was satisfied now do you ever think about that do you ever think about the wrath of God that was satisfied and you say well of course pastor Rick because if God's wrath wasn't satisfied then we would not be saved we would not have our sins taken away and that's true but I don't know if you've ever thought about how can one ordinary man bear the sins of so many. How could one man, even a sinless, righteous man, be able to pay for the sins of so many? Now, it, it might help us if we thought about how a person could maybe pay for the sins of one person, but for all of God's people, how, how could that be? And, and if his pain for their sins was the punishment of eternity in hell, and if you think about it, that's what happens to those that do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. As they reject Him, they will spend eternity in hell. And so that wrath that was due all of His people that God had purchased for Himself 
was poured upon Jesus Christ. Have you ever thought about that? How could that be that an eternity of wrath of God could be paid for in Christ and then he could rise from the dead in victory? Well, the solution is it comes because of the incarnation. It becomes because Jesus Christ is human and so he could represent us. He was human so he could suffer and he could die on our behalf. But he had to be divine in order for that sacrifice to be of significant worth and value to satisfy the debt of such sin. And he had to be divine in order to be able to bear the weight of such accumulated wrath of God for the sins of so many people. Jesus could do that. And so God sent the perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ incarnate, both uh, man and God, uh, for us. So the incarnation is something that's, that's pertinent, not only to Christmas. I mean, whenever we think of the incarnation and Christ coming to earth, we oftentimes think of the baby in the manger. And that's true. And we talk about the incarnation at Christmas, but it also has bearing upon Easter, too, as well, and, uh, and a great significance. So let's just look just briefly. I want to spend most of the time on the resurrection, but I want to just talk a little bit about Christ's humiliation in the incarnation. Uh, of course, whenever we think about that, that Jesus came to earth in a mission that involved the humbling of himself, we think of passages like Philippians chapter 2. So if you turn to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, and you, you think, wow, we always go there, and that's true. Um, there are other passages that talk about his humbling and his exaltation. But this one is just so classic. It's just so good. It's so rich. Why would we not return to it? Let me read Philippians 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, that passage from Philippians tells us at least two specific things about Christ's humiliation. First of all, he was humbled by becoming a human by becoming a man now we don't get that okay we, we may not see the big deal because we are sort of think of ourselves if I could sort of use secular language we sort of see ourselves as the top of the food chain right you know we see ourselves as, as more important you know we have thumbs right so we're we're more advanced and, and things like that so we think to be human is pretty big deal but think about it brothers and sisters Think about it. Remember where Jesus came from. He, he exists for all eternity as the Son of God. He, he ex his existence was that of glory. It, it was one of reigning on high. He is the one whom the angels and the saints worship 24-7. Holy, 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 glory be to God. Everything in heaven revolves around God. That's where Christ sat. That is his existence before he came to earth as a man. Constant praise and worship was lifted up to him. And not just so because, you know, that's a nice thing to do, but his character dictated that. He is so glorious and so wonderful that 
The beings in heaven cannot help but worship him. They have to. His character demands that. And the angelic beings submitted their will to his, doing everything he said, taking to heart everything that he spoke, praising him because he has no beginning and he has no end. And yet, even though Jesus Christ is divine, there came a time when Jesus Christ set aside that glory and he humbled himself. Now, kids, we talk about humbling ourselves a lot, but but humbling means to take a position lower than your dignity deserves, right? Taking a position lower than your dignity deserves. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ did. Here he is, the glorious God over all things, and he takes a position as a mere man. But I think the thing that's so interesting is, is that when he came and he set aside his glory to come as humanity, he didn't come as, as uh, you know, Elon Musk, right? Or Donald Trump or, you know, some other wealthy person that we might think of. Jesus came as the low of the lowest. He came from a family that, that not only was poor and had meager means, but even the circumstances surrounding his birth was controversial. That's where Jesus Christ came. No one bowed to him wherever he went as they should have. No one cried, holy, holy, holy is the son of the living God. Instead, they despised him. They, they looked down upon him. He, he existed in a physical body that had human limitations and weaknesses and sufferings and troubles and temptations. Brothers and sisters, he was hungry. And he got thirsty. And at times he experienced the frailty of human existence. He got tired. And so in his divine nature, these would have all been things that would have been completely foreign to him. But in his birth as a baby boy, he willingly entered into this state of humility. Now, so he became human. But the second thing we see in Philippians is, is he was humiliated or humbled in his death on the cross. Now, surely when Paul says the cross, he's talking about everything that surrounded all the suffering that Christ entailed surrounding that, which would be the betrayal from Judas, one of his own disciples whom he had handpicked, uh, the denials of Peter, uh, the desertion by his other disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. It would have included the false witnesses against him at, at, uh, and the unjust verdicts at, at multiple courts that he stood before before his crucifixion. It would have included the floggings and, and, and the crown of thorns and the mockings and, and more and more. But all of that culminated in the cross. And there his sufferings came to a climax when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there he experienced in our place God's wrath for sin. There he who knew no sin became sin for us. There was the greatest of his humiliation, but he did so so that we could be saved. Amen? And that's why we gather this morning to worship him, for he is worthy. So Jesus lays aside his glory to experience what he experienced on earth out of love for his father, to do his father's will, and out of a love for those whom he came to save. He humbled himself to become a person dying upon the cross. Now, understand that Paul in Romans 1 is, is speaking about the gospel, right? 
And, and what we need to see is, is that you can't have the gospel only uh, by having only Christ's exaltation. You also have to have his humiliation, right? Because without his humiliation, we don't see who we are. Do you know what the gospel does for us? Do you know what the cross does for us as human beings? It shows you yourself. It shows you what you're really like. It shows me what I'm really like. You know, we, we are so prone to excuse our sins, are we not? We always think, well, our sins aren't quite as bad as everybody else's. As a matter of fact, we might even sort of think, if everybody was more like me, the world might be a better place to live. Which is not true. But anyway, but not only that do we sort of excuse our sins, but oftentimes we blame our sins on other people, do we not? You know, if that person at work was not so difficult then I wouldn't be so tempted to, to grumble and to complain about them. I wouldn't gossip about them to other people about how terrible they are. You know, they're the ones that's causing me to do this. Or kids, have you ever worked on a project, whether it's for school or just for fun, and then you had a younger sibling come in, and they destroyed your project. And so you're like, ah! You know, and what happens? That, that, that means mom and dad, their antennas go up, right? And they come in, they're like, oh, okay, guys, what's going on? And you're like, they did! And you start just listing all their sins, right? They did this and they did that. And, you know, in other words, they're the ones that are at fault. But do you, have you ever thought about this, kids? If your siblings did that, if they destroyed your project, and you forgave them, there would be no anger. There would be no harsh words spoken. Because you would have forgiven them. So they didn't make you sin. They just tempted you to sin. It's the wickedness of your heart that caused you to sin. And, and the cross shows us that the problem is not other people. It's me. It's my heart. It's the wickedness. Jesus died for me. Why? Because of my sin. Think of it like this. Why did the Son of God ever come into the world? Why did he have to leave the courts of glory? Why was he born a little baby? Why did he have to take human nature upon himself? Well, there's only one answer. Because people could not save themselves. That's why Luke tells us that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Because there's nothing that we could do for ourselves. And when I look at the cross and I see him dying there, what, what he tells us is this, that we really have nothing to brag about. Even though we're tempted oftentimes, are we not, to sort of brag on ourselves? Now, we don't think of it that way. We're just telling people about ourselves. We're just telling them about our lives. But it seems like we're always the hero in our stories, are we not? And we always seem to, to, to be the one that... You know, everybody ought to be saying, wow, I'm so glad you exist on this world. This is so awesome that I'm in your presence. This is so great. Now, we, we may not think of ourselves that way, but we oftentimes do sort of like promote ourselves a lot. But the cross tells us you have nothing to brag about. As a matter of fact, the cross tells us that I am a complete failure and that I am such a failure that he had to come from heaven, not, not merely to, to preach and to teach, now, not just tell me how to, to live a better life, but I am so sinful, I needed somebody to come and to die for me, to pay for all the sins that I have done against God. 
and against other people. And that's what Jesus Christ did. And, and there is nothing that, that will ever humble a person, <laughs> a nation, a family, whatever, but the cross. Because the cross simply tells us the plain truth about ourselves. Well, if, if implied in this text is the humiliation of Christ, then verse 4 definitely more clearly even uh, shares the exaltation of Christ. In verse 4, that He is the Son of God, and that that is evidenced by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's not just merely a man, He is the Son of God. And of course, that's why we celebrate Easter. So I want to spend the rest of my time talking about Christ's divinity. He not only was human, but He was divine as well. Verse 4 says, And He was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, some here, as they read this text, find three evidences of Christ's divinity. His power, His work of the Spirit, and resurrection from the dead. But I sort of like the way that John Calvin puts it. He said, you know, he goes, it's, it's probably way better to connect these three ideas together and just to see them as one. That Christ was declared the Son of God, and it's seen by the power peculiar to God. It's seen by the power of the Holy Spirit that shone forth in Jesus, that resulted in Jesus rising from the dead. Did not Jesus say, you know, destroy this temple, and in three days what? I will raise it up. Jesus gained victory over death, death to which he yielded himself. Death had no power over Jesus. Did you ever thought about that? Because he was sinless, uh, death had no power over him. Matter of fact, Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 18, no one takes, he's speaking about his life, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And so Christ gained the victory over death by the heavenly operation of his own Holy Spirit as he rose, raised him from the dead. Now, how does the resurrection, or how did the resurrection show that Jesus Christ was the Son of God? Well, first of all, the resurrection vindicates Jesus. Jesus uh, taught while he was here on earth that he was the Son of Man, but he also taught that he was the Son of God. As a matter of fact, uh, before Jesus was put to death, many people rejected his teaching that, that he was God. And just an example of that was even when Jesus was on trial before the Sanhedrin. And when he, when he said that he was the Son of God, the high priest declared that Jesus was what? Committing blasphemy. He was saying something that was not true. Well, if Jesus' opponents were correct, then the cross, which God calls a, a cursed way to die, would have been the end of Jesus. He would have died and he would have stayed dead to show that he was blaspheming against God. It would have been God's way through the religious leaders and the civil government to affirm this charge of blasphemy against Jesus. But of course, that's not what happened, is it? Jesus rose from the dead. Death could not hold him. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it, as we read in Acts 2.24. And so it, it signals his vindication against the opponents and their accusations against him. Jesus really was, Jesus really is the Son of God who was raised 
and power. He was who he claimed to be. But the other thing we see about Jesus' resurrection is it really changes his ministry. Okay, in, in Jesus' ministry on earth, his, the focus was really on his humiliation. It, it's not that we never saw his glory. There was the transfiguration. There were uh, explanations that Jesus gave about who he was and his divinity and stuff like that. There, there were those things. Um, but for the most part, it was focused on his humiliation. But at the resurrection, it's the exaltation of Christ that is, is the focus. It's what's put into full swing. But before Jesus' death, he was very guarded in revealing himself to the world about his Messiahship and his sonship. He, he told people before the cross to keep the truth uh, about who he was to themselves. Remember in Matthew 16, very famous passage about Jesus. He's asking his disciples, who do people say that I am? And then he said, who do you say that I am? And of course, Peter, you know, he's always the guy that has to open his mouth first, you know, and he pipes up and he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And what does Jesus say? Go tell the world. No, Jesus strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. But later on, after his resurrection, as Jesus stood before the very same disciples, minus one, Jesus Christ tells the same disciples to go and to tell everyone. Go therefore and make disciples of all the world. You see, when he announced on the cross, it is finished, it was signaling a change in his ministry. And, and we see him in his power. Now, look at verse 4. It, it talks about the power that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God through power. And yes, we think of the power that actually raised him from the dead. But think about the power he wields after the resurrection. Uh, it's like in Matthew 28, once again. As Jesus is the resurrected Christ. As he stands before his disciples. Before he gives the great commission. What does he say? All authority in heaven and on earth, have been given to me. Now, in his, divinity, in his divinity, he had all authority, okay? But there seems to be some new declaration that he's making there about his authority on the risen Christ. He stands there raised from the dead as the victor over sin and death. He stands as the only mediator between God and man with the ability to forgive sins because he paid for those sins with his own blood. It's just like in the book of Revelation, as we read that the scroll is presented and the question is given, who is worthy to open this scroll? And who steps forward? Jesus Christ, the lamb that was slain for the foundation of the world. And, and he could open that scroll and all of heaven worshiped and, and praised him. Remember uh, Philippians 2, turn back there again in verses 9 through 11. As, as we sort of transition from, from talking about his humiliation to his exaltation, verse 9 we read, Therefore God was highly, has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Oh, do you, do you realize that this morning? Do you see how exalted Jesus Christ is? That he sits at the right hand of the Father to rule over all things. I mean, you know, I've heard several references to the book of Job, this, 
this past week as I've been talking to people in the congregation and stuff. And, you know, it is interesting as you look at the book of Job that Satan could not do anything without God giving him permission, right? And just think about that. That's where Jesus sits today. He sits upon his throne and Satan can do nothing. No one can hurt his church. No one can do anything apart from his rule and giving his permission. And so Philippians 2 makes this, this connection that we've been sort of talking about, that humiliation is followed by exaltation. That there's a way in which Jesus Christ is exalted all the more because of his death, because of what he accomplished on the cross. And that's why we see pictures like we see in the book of Revelation. Uh, with their worshiping and praising him. He's always been worthy to be praised. But now the church has seen the great love of God. They've seen the expression of that great love in his death and then in his resurrection. And so we worship and we praise him even more. And so Jesus now has entered into this new stage of redemptive history. He has purchased his church with his own blood. He is exalted above all. Not only has he been raised from the dead, but he has ascended up into heaven and reigns on high. Now, you think that he was worthy to be praised before. He is even more so worthy to be praised, is he not, for what he has done. And brothers and sisters, you know, he has now sent us as the church into the world to herald the gospel, the good news. He wants us to go and to promote His glory and to share who He is, to call people to faith and repentance, to announce God's way of salvation in Christ, to proclaim the gospel that we can be forgiven because of what Christ's atoning death has done for us, to preach the resurrection and the life which we have been given in Christ who himself was raised from the dead. This is the ministry of Christ. It is the ministry of his church. As he rules from his exalted position. You know, I was thinking about that this week. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, brothers and sisters. You know, sometimes evangelism, for me can feel more like a duty. Like, have I been doing this? Oh, I've not been doing this. And so you can feel a little bit of guilt. But, but as I was reading this text, and as I was studying this, I was realizing sort of a, a different perspective that we get the privilege of witnessing because we see who Jesus Christ is. We see Him in all His glory. We see Him as the Son of God who is moving forward and proclaiming His glory upon the earth even now so that the captive can be set free. And, and I, I'll be honest with you, brothers and sisters, I was brought up short. And I thought, oh Lord, oh Lord, I, I, I just realized that each day I should get up and I should say, Lord, how can I approach this day? Who can I share Jesus Christ with? Lord, who will you bring into my path? Lord, will you give me the words that when I meet that person, I can share Jesus Christ? And I think, oh Lord, if we all did that, if we, if we grabbed the, the VIP cards in the back and we started writing down the names of those people in our lives that don't know the Lord Jesus Christ and we began to pray for them regularly every day, 
And if we were had such a gospel focus of Lord, use me, send me to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, I can't help but think that a year from now, the kingdom of God might look different. I can't help but think that maybe Kirk of the Plains would look different. That there would be people sitting in this worship service that are not sitting here today, that are praising Jesus because they heard the privilege of hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God worked in their hearts and quickened them and gave them new life in Jesus Christ. You know, my friend, this, this brings us to really the call of this passage this morning. We read here that the Christians have, have been called to faith in Christ and the gospel. Verse 6, including you are, uh, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. And we know that we belong to him uh, through faith. Um, in other words, we have been called to believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. This is the obedience of faith that we see mentioned in verse 5. But our faith is to acknowledge that Christ's work on the cross was done for the forgiveness of sins and to receive that forgiveness and to acknowledge your sins and to look with his, Him to help to live a life with Jesus as your Lord. This is the call that Easter is all about. Because that, that first Easter, when Jesus rose from the dead, this call is all the more required of us. In, in other words, the, the historical reality of Christ's resurrection means that He really is the Son of God. He really is the Son of God. He is who He claimed to be. And because He rose from the dead, it's clear to us that He has the power to save us from our sins. He won that power on the cross. And there will be those, all of us actually, will stand before Him one day but I just want to talk to those maybe today who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, maybe you're like, oh, all that religion stuff, that's just a bunch of bunk. Just maybe an organization trying to control people. But I want you to think about this. One day you will stand before Jesus. Okay, and this is Jesus in all His glory, all His righteousness, all His perfection. And you will stand before Him as one who has rebelled against Him, and you have lived your life your own way. You have sinned against Him. And here on this earth, you can lots of times hide your sin, and people can't see truly what's in your heart. They can't really see the wickedness of your heart always. But before Jesus Christ, you are transparent. He will see you as you are. As a matter of fact, His glory is so great, and His gaze is so powerful that is, He looks at you and He sees your sin, even you will be aware of your sin. And you will bow your knee before Him and you will recognize that you fully deserve His wrath because of your rebellion and your sin against Him. What will you do on that day? What will you do on that day? You will have no hope. You will have no Savior. You will have nothing but to accept the judgment that He has to give. But through me today, He is calling out to you to say, recognize your sin. See what your heart is like. Realize the offense that you have committed against God. And come to Him and throw yourself at His feet today. And say, God have mercy upon me. I have sinned against you. Forgive me, Lord, 
Forgive me, O God. Please take the sacrifice of your son and apply that, O Lord, to my heart. O help me to turn from my sin and to trust in you and rest upon you and you alone. See, Christ has been clearly set forth to all as the Son of God with power. And He is calling you this morning to trust in Him as the Son of God. To rest in His power. To follow Him. So I want to encourage you today. Don't leave without affirming that Jesus is both the Lord and the Savior of your life. And, and if you're joining us via the live stream, you can do that right there in your own home or wherever it is that you're listening. But if you're here today and you are a child of the living God, and I know that most of you here in this room that you are, and you recognize and your, your confession is that Jesus is the Christ, He is the Son of God, then I want to encourage you this morning. I want you to rejoice again today that Christ is risen. For His exaltation will mean that one day you will be exalted. Though right now we live in a life and have opportunities to share in Christ's sufferings, that's only for a little while. But one day when He comes again, He will usher us into eternal glory to be with Him. And at that point, it will be our resurrection. And so be encouraged, dear fellow believers. That day of resurrection is coming and it will be glorious. So keep that in your heart, in your minds, not only today on this Easter Sunday, but also throughout your life. What a blessed person you are because of what your Savior has done for you. Let's please bow our heads and have a time of silent meditation as we reflect upon the word that's preached this morning. Lord, we thank you, God, so much for such a wonderful uh, plan of salvation that you have executed. We, we come this morning, Lord, as your children to worship and to, to praise you. Uh, Lord, we are also very aware that we are so undeserving, that there's nothing, God, that we could have done to warrant such love as you have shown to us. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And we pray, Lord, for those that do not know you, that hear this message this morning, that they, their eyes might be open, the scales might be removed from their sight, that they could see, Lord, the wonderful gift that is given in Jesus Christ. And Lord, that they could be partakers of this wonderful gift. Father, as we uh, continue in our worship today, especially as we, we come to the table, Lord, would you strengthen and encourage your church and in, in, in who you are and what you have done for us. We pray in your name. Amen.